Last week I introduced the text by asking you whether or not you wanted to be in a vibrant relationship with Christ, whether or not you would uh, prefer that over uh, what is more common, which is a lifeless, lethargic uh, Christian life. Um, there are too many people uh, who live there, uh, and yet uh, none of them would say that's their desire, I don't think. I mean, if I asked you, do you desire a lifeless, boring, ritualistic Christian life, you'd say no, of course not. I want a vibrant, real one. No one wants a phony Christian life. We're all drawn to the genuine, to the authentic, to, and to see or to have a, a faith that is, is a sham is no interest to anybody in their heart of hearts, right? Um, I tried to explain this last week from verses 35 and 36 that you've just heard read. Um, and I wanted, I, last week I wanted to show you what it means for God to incline our hearts towards Him uh, and His Word. And to summarize last week's sermon, I would say this, in order to delight in our relationship with God, He must turn our hearts away from selfishness and towards Himself. He must make us able and willing to pursue Him with our whole heart. And yet, the mystery of our participation remains, doesn't it? God must do it, and we must participate. Today, we're going to continue in our examination of how God patiently educates us in his school of sanctification, his school of becoming like Christ. And he does it patiently. Aren't you thankful for that? Uh, he's like an expert gardener who gently trains a tender vine. And so we're learning what it means to be educated by God from Psalm 119 to become more like Jesus Christ, his son. Um, so today's focus is verse 37, where it says, Turn my eyes from looking at worthless things and give me life in your ways. This verse, we'll see two things that I'm going to spend the rest of our time on. That is, first of all, stifling grace, and then secondly, strengthening grace. So if you're into summaries, here's a summary of our sermon today. A vibrant relationship with God is dependent on our cooperation with God's grace to turn away from sinful and harmful distractions. Let me say that again. A vibrant relationship with God is dependent on our cooperation with God's grace to turn away from sinful and harmful distractions. Do you want to have a vibrant Christian life? Yes, of course you do. So do I. In order to do that, we need to cooperate with God's grace to turn away from things that would distract us from a genuine, authentic relationship with him. That's what this verse means in summary. So now we can pray and go home, right? Well, I'm going to spend a little more time talking about it. And uh, I, I'm hoping that and praying that um, what the Holy Spirit has for us today will be of great encouragement to you. So let's look at stifling grace. Now, the word stifling sounds a bit negative, and it typically is. It means to repress, and no one likes repression, right? Uh, but I want to I demonstrate for you how um, stifling is a good concept in the Christian life. Um, 
Stifling is what we see in verse 37, and it, is, happens, it happens to be one of the most important things that happens in the Christian life uh, in becoming like Jesus. To enjoy a vital relationship with him, we need this kind of stifling that we read of there in the first line. Turn my eyes from looking at worthless things. Um, so what is the object of stifling that we see in this verse? It's worthless things, right? That's what is being stifled. Worthless things. The author knows that if he is ever going to have a lively relationship with God, he will have to rid himself of worthless things. And it's the same for us. I want to create that conviction in you that if I'm ever going to walk with Christ faithfully, if I'm ever going to have a vibrant, genuine, significant relationship with God, I'm going to have to sooner or later turn my back away from worthless things. So what are the worthless things he's referring to? That would be a good thing to know, right? If we're going to turn our back on something, what is it? And I want to, I want to there's a lot that falls into this category um, and the idea of, of worthless things in verse 37 uh, basically refers to this, things that bring no value or have no value in, in making you walk with Christ. Those are worthless things in his mind. They have no, they have no ability to improve or deepen your relationship with God. Those are the worthless things in this author's mind. Now, uh, there are some things in our lives that aren't bad, but they don't create a deeper walk with Christ. That's kind of the weight that's spoken of in Hebrews chapter 12. They're not bad, they're not sinful, but they're not of any value to make you walk deeper with Christ. That's included in this verse. But there are other worthless things that are much more toxic than that and uh, actually damage our relationship with God. And we're going to look at both. Let me read some verses for you that will give you an idea of what is in view here. Um, for you ladies, Proverbs 31, 30, charm is deceitful and beauty is vain, but a woman who fears the Lord is to be praised. Now. There are, it's, I don't think it's wrong to be beautiful. In fact, I think it's actually a blessing to us men. Um, charm also can be, can be beneficial, but charm can also be deceitful. We just, we just read it. <laughs> but both charm and beauty would be included in worthless things in Psalm 119, verse 37. They're of no value in deepening your walk with Christ. Another one that's more common to us James 5, come now you rich, weep and howl for the miseries that are coming upon you. Your riches have rotted and your garments are moth-eaten. Your gold and silver have corroded and their corrosion will be evidence against you. So it's, it's this, uh, it's this uh, what is it? Focus on material things. That is the idea behind James's definition of worthless things. And so these are just examples from Scripture, that might, things that might be included in worthless things. And I'm sure that as we continue through uh, our point here this morning, you'll see other things in your life that the Holy Spirit will bring to mind that would be included in this definition. So worthless things are what Satan uses to deceive and distract us from our pursuit of God. What are some things in your life, for example, that might be included in that. 
things that, that the enemy might use to distract you from walking more closely with Christ. He uses those things to draw us away from a truly satisfying thing, which is God and a relationship with him. So if, we, if, if Satan can, can get you distracted by something attractive, whatever that is to you, uh, then he will have succeeded in keeping you from the most satisfying thing, which is God himself. So anything that is substituted for God in your life is a worthless thing. Now, worthless in this definition. For example, um, money is not worthless. It's valuable, it's a gift from God, but it's not worthless to us. But it is worthless when it comes to making you more Christ-like. All right? That's the idea here. So, do you want a vibrant relationship with Christ? Yes. Then the psalmist would say, then, then get rid of worthless things. Turn your back on them. Don't depend on them. Uh, things that might be cheap substitutes for God. Turn away from those things. Um, so this is, this is the object of stifling worthless things. What is the instrument of stifling in that verse? The eyes, right? Uh, the eyes are controlled by the mind, and yet the eye is the delivery vehicle that corrupts the mind kind of interesting to think about. The more our minds or hearts allow the eye to dwell on worthless things, the further away it is drawn from God and spiritual things. Um, the mind and the eye can either work in unison to fight against the things of this world that would derail us from a uh, genuine and passionate relationship with God, or they can work together to bring our heart down, which you think is the natural yeah, it's, it's uh, the, the natural experience for us is that we have to do battle. Um, the natural thing is for our eyes to work in union with our heart to draw us away from Christ, <laughs> not towards him. So here, here's why we see the author pleading with God in verse 37 that he would turn his eyes away from worthless things because he knows he can't do it in and of himself. And so he's pleading with God, please do this. I want to have a vibrant relationship with you, a deep, um, significant walk with Christ, but I know that I can't do that by myself. So please, God, turn my focus away from worthless things and solely on Christ is a way we could um, translate that verse. He knows that God must act. And what is, of course, the action of stifling? Um, the instrument is the eye. What's the action? It's the turning away. That's what the action of stifling is. You actually turn away from those things. Um, it, it's something that's extremely difficult, if not impossible for us, right? We don't, at least I don't, do this very well. I'm not very good at it. I usually am drawn to whatever's in front of me. Um, and so we need to be given the strength by God to do exactly this very thing that's required for a, a deeper walk with Christ. And you know what's interesting is this is the case with all of us, starting with Adam and Eve. We've all been easily distracted. We are all spiritually ADD. Um, but if we want a joyful relationship with God and a faithful walk with Christ, we will need his stifling grace in order to turn away from worthless things. We need him. 
Jesus said, without me, you can do nothing. So this, this stifling action is a turning away. Um, what does it mean to turn my eyes from looking at worthless things on, on a practical level? What does it mean? I mean, you can picture it in your mind. Uh, there's something there and you turn away from it so you don't see it anymore. Well, let's talk about it in biblical terms. The Bible describes this as dying to sin. All right, this is what the Apostle Peter said in his first epistle. He said, he himself bore our sins in his body on a tree. Why? That we might die to sin and live to righteousness. So a, a turning away from worthless things is a dying to sin. It's, it's being dead to it. And of course, we know that being dead to something means you don't respond to it. You don't respond to stimuli if you're dead. And that's what we are called to be here. We, we need to, to be actively, daily practicing dying to sin, turning away from worthless things. So Peter's words there that I just read for you are, are really, truly a mirror of Psalm 119, verse 37. Dying to sin is, is the most important part of living to righteousness. You want to live to righteousness? Then you must die to sin. This is what Psalm 119.37 is saying. This is what Peter is saying in 1 Peter 2. This is also what Romans 6 is all about. And we'll get to that in a second. But the first thing that turning my eyes from looking at worthless things means is dying to sin. Secondly, it means guarding your senses. Guarding your senses. You know, in your battle with sin, have you ever discovered that one of the best ways to defeat sin is to guard your senses, to guard your eyes, your ears, your taste, your smell, and your touch, those five things that easily draw us into things? If you, if you are in a battle with sin, the, the battle rests on one of those five things. Our senses are corrupted by the fall, just like everything else. And the five senses are a battlefield for the heart. And so we must guard the entry port to our heart by being vigilant at each of these gates or ports to the soul. We need to set up sentries at each of those places. The psalmist chooses the eye port because that particular port is especially strategic in the fight against sin. The eye port. Satan has planted a trap for all of us by the port of the eye, by that weakest access to our heart. And when we let down our guard or are careless about what is outside the door, then Satan, of course, springs the trap and we're caught. We need to be vigilant daily in this way. I think most of us are susceptible through the eye port of the soul. I know that I am. The Apostle Paul in Romans 6 said this, do not present your members as sins to, uh, or uh, to sin as instruments of unrighteousness. Don't present your eye. Don't allow your eye to be used as an instrument to sin or your smell or your taste or your hearing. But present yourselves to God. Die to sin, live to righteousness. All right. So in Romans 6.13, Paul is addressing the same issue that Peter was in 1 Peter 2 that the psalmist is in verse 37 of Psalm 119 turning away from sin towards God, dying to sin, living to righteousness. Um, your, your eye, your ear, your taste can all be instruments of unrighteousness that Satan uses to gain access to your heart, 
to overwhelm us with weighty burdens that drowned us really in an ocean of worthless things. He uses your God-given senses against you. And, and if we're aware of that, it aids us in the, in the battle. But we also must pay special attention to the eye specifically. That's why it's used here in verse 37. Um, it's the most important point, port to the soul. It's, it's, the, it's the primary access to the heart. You know, the eye is a gift from God, of course, we know that. And the reason he's given us eyesight is to take in his glory, to, to see glimpses of God through his creation, through his word. It's to see, literally see his glory. And we know from 2 Corinthians that his glory is what transforms us into the image of Christ, right? So the eye, eyesight, is a wonderful gift from God. And we've all experienced it, haven't we? When you're out camping, you look up in the sky at night, and what do you see? Things that draw your heart to God. And that's the way God's designed it. Psalm 19 tells us that very thing. Um, this is repeated in Psalm 8, in Romans chapter 1. Nature is designed by God to draw us to himself. He, he designed the eye to be able to appreciate his glory, his creation. Um, but it's also our greatest threat to holiness. Although the eye was created to take in the glory of God, it can also cause great damage to the soul. Job identified this in his struggle. In verse uh, 7 of chapter 31, he said, In my step, if my step has turned aside from the way, and my heart has gone after my eyes. So the eyes see something that are distracting, these worthless things, and what happens? Our heart jumps to, jumps to follow. Our eyes, because they are attached to our sinful cells, really work as a matchmaker between sin and the heart. It sees something and says, hey, heart, come, come, take a look at this. And, of course, our hearts follow. The, the eyes look at sensuous things or sensual things, worthless things, and relay that information to the heart and, and puts us in critical danger. For me, seeing temptation is the most dangerous form of temptation. It might be different for you, but most likely, seeing is a big deal to you as it is to me. We need, also need to keep in mind that this is something Satan has made a, a successful practice of throughout human history. Um, accessing the heart through the eye. This is what it says in 2 Peter. They have eyes full of adultery. What does that mean? Eyes full of adultery. Can your eyes commit adultery? Well, they can be full of adultery. I know that. I know that technically my eyes can't commit adultery. But they can be full of adultery. The eyes are the port to the heart. And Jesus said something very significant about this, didn't he? If you think in your heart this way, you have committed the sin. So the eye is such a critical thing to consider. The Apostle John affirmed this when he said one of the primary concerns when fighting sin is the lust of the eyes. This was the case in Lot's life. Remember that guy, Abraham's nephew? In Genesis chapter 3, verse, or 13, verse 10, it says he lifted up his eyes to the Jordan Valley and desired it. 
And he was looking at the Jordan Valley from the place God put him and his uncle Abraham. And that look, that just that simple look was the downfall of Lot's life. He went from looking to going to participating. And this is what the eyes do. They lead us astray. Listen to how this worked with Eve. Genesis 3, 6, so when the woman saw the tree was good for food, that it was the delight to the eyes, and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took its fruit, ate. She also gave some to her husband who ate with her, and he ate. Where did it begin? Right here, in the eyes. This is why the psalmist is focusing on it. Eve's heart was persuaded by her eyes that the fruit was going to be really good and was deceived. Her heart deceived her. She had sinned before she ate the fruit. This was the same strategy used by Satan against Jesus in Matthew chapter 4. Remember this? It says this, again, the devil took him to a high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world in their glory. Satan says, Jesus, come look with your eyes and all these things that I can give you. This tactic has worked throughout human history. Genesis 39, 7, speaking of Potiphar's wife, after uh, a time, his master's wife cast her eyes on Joseph and said, lie with me. Joshua 7, 21, when I saw, this is Achan's testimony, when I saw among the spoil a beautiful cloak from Shinar and 200 shekels of silver and a bar of gold weighing 50 shekels, then I coveted them and took them and see they are hidden in the earth and inside my tent with the silver underneath. He saw it, his heart bought in, and sin took over. If Achan would have been blind, he wouldn't have died that day. 2 Samuel 11. It happened late one afternoon when David arose from his couch and was walking on the roof of the king's house that he saw from the roof a woman bathing, and the woman was beautiful. And we know the rest of the story. His eyes got him into trouble. We'll talk about this in a minute, but he could have approached this differently. David could have. Strategy is important here. David was careless, and this is something we need to be careful for. This is why the psalmist is, is addressing this particular issue. We can be so careless with our eyes, with what enters our heart through our eyes. It seems like um, this is a common problem with, with believers. We, we don't realize the strategic nature of the eyes in our battle with sin. Um, this is why the psalmist is addressing this particular thing. If we're going to uh, grow in God's school of sanctification, um, we need to be more attentive to the port of the eye in dealing with worthless things. Uh, they, Christians let their eyes gaze on anything that might pass their view without any effort of restraint. It would be like letting a boat float down the river without trying to direct it with the oars, just sitting in the boat and let's see where this takes me. It's not a good strategy. You'll end up on the rock someplace. Um, 
And yet, in the Christian life, it seems more often than not that is our strategy. We wake up with no concern for or a fear of what may cross before our eyes, and we just kind of approach the day like, let's see what happens today. And we end up finding ourselves in trouble and wonder why. Have you ever noticed how, out of the blue, a sin that you thought you had conquered rises its ugly head again? You thought you you defeated that thing years ago? How did this happen? I thought I beat this thing. Well, um, when we allow the substance of a conquered sin to marinate our heart through the port of the eye, it rises up and begins a renewed battle. You can't just soak your heart in past sins through the port of the eye and think nothing's going to happen. It's it's careless to think that way. Look at the first clause of verse 37. It's a request for God's help in the battle. Turn my eyes. He's praying to God. Um, He's asking God for help in this battle with his eyes. And again, of course, it's, it's... Not just, God, uh, you must do this because I'm just going to be lazy and look at anything I want to. No, we must participate in the process. You know, a lot of people try to justify their sin by saying, well, if if my only hope is that God does the work and if I sin, it must be his fault, so whatever. Come see, come sa. Job Job was determined, was was, uh, active, in his dealing with his eyes. He says in Job 31 that he made a covenant between his heart and his eyes to protect his soul. Has that thought crossed your mind? To actively discipline what you look at daily? Um, We need to control what enters the port of our eyes. We don't want the enemy to have just free access to our heart. There must be a practice of constant watchfulness. You know, let me give you some examples in case you're vague on this. If you have a problem with lust and you go shopping for your wife, don't walk down the magazine row. That's planning ahead, little strategy for you. Uh, If you have a, a weakness in drunkenness, don't walk down the alcohol aisle. If you have a weakness in greed, don't look at all the sales things you get in the mail. Be careful with what enters your eyes. Um, It's not real rocket science, but unless we're actively thinking about it, it it gains access to a heart without any resistance. Jesus said this, if your right eye causes you to sin, gouge it out. We're going to pass out spoon gougers after the service. Um, Actually, Jesus wasn't saying, pluck out your eye. He was saying, be drastic with your protection measures. If, If you have to, don't turn on the computer. I mean, that might be drastic for some of you. The next thing that we see in verse 37 
coming off his, his plea for stifling grace is his plea for strengthening grace. You see that in the second half of the verse? If we're going to energetically and joyfully and genuinely walk with God, we're going to need to give, we're going to need Him to give us a, a spiritual vibrancy, a godly affection, a renewed grace, additional new degrees of grace if we're going to win this thing. If we're going to grow in Christ's likeness, have a, a significant walk with Christ that's real and joyful, He's going to have to do something in our soul. And that doesn't negate our need to participate and be careful. It just means that he must work. Stifling grace and strengthening grace must work together for our sanctification. Unless we turn our eyes from worthless things, we're going to continue to see our heart thicken and, and, and become calloused against the things of God. It's, it's going to be kind of a, a, an increasing deadness of soul. Friends, there's nothing that causes atrophy of the heart more than an engagement with worthless things. The more your, 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 your mind and heart is, is engaged with worthless things, the, the less joy and, and, and authenticity you have with Christ. When our affections are, are focused on worldly things, they're dead to God. And so the more interest you have in God, the less interest you're going to have in the world and vice versa. The more interest you have in the world, the less interest you're going to have in God. It's that simple. So what does it mean to ask God to to give us life in his ways? If this is your prayer, what, what are you praying? Give me life in your ways. Well, it means potentially two things. One, possibly regeneration. The only way you can have life, if God grants it, Ephesians 2, right? You were dead in your trespasses and sin, but God in his mercy made you alive in Christ. That's one thing that is on the table, but most likely it's the second thing, strengthening grace. We don't just get a a, a one-time serving of grace at regeneration and then being told good luck by the Holy Spirit. No, we, we get, as Christians, regenerating grace at that moment of conversion, and then we get ongoing or strengthening grace throughout our sanctifying process, which is required. Second Peter 3 says, but grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord. In other words, there's more that can be added here. Grow, get better, put more use. Um, so what is strengthening grace? When we're commanded to grow in the grace and knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ, which is what Peter's words were, it's a command, grow in the grace, I command you to grow. It it simply means what what Psalm 119.37 says, give me life in your ways. It's It's a request to grow in grace. And who exemplified this life of God's ways more than Jesus Christ? No one. And so growing in grace um, giving, receiving more life in his ways is simply being strengthened to be like Jesus. It's growth in the grace of Jesus Christ. He was full of grace and truth. From him we receive, we receive grace upon grace, John chapter 1 tells us. It's a continual intake of the grace that Jesus is in himself and offers to anyone who asks. 
So what does that look like? What does the grace of Jesus Christ look like? What's it look like to be given life in his way? Well, let's think about Jesus for a second. Did he have determination in the moment of temptation? Yes. Was he dependent on the Father in the moment of temptation? Yes. So he was determined and dependent when he faced Satan's tricks. He was determined in his soul to keep his eyes focused on his Father. And he was dependent on the work of the Spirit to strengthen him for the battle. He was also committed to the sacrificial service of others, obviously. This as opposed to being uninterested in our welfare, uh, or lethargic, or slothful, or dead in his spirit towards the needs of those around him. No, he was engaged, he was committed to sacrificial service to the people around him, and of course, ultimately to you and I through his sacrificial death on Calvary, right? Next, Jesus' grace in our lives might look like his in that he was passionate for communion with his Father. How passionate are you in relation to the Lord? Are you asleep right now in the service? Then you're not passionate. <laughs> Jesus, Jesus exercised his spiritual life. He memorized large portions of Scripture. He prayed at length regularly. He communed with the Holy Spirit and the Father moment by moment. Why is this strengthening grace necessary? Because we need it to follow Christ's example and to walk like he did. If you claim Christ, the Apostle John said, you must walk like Jesus did. Um, strengthening grace is given to strengthen us for the tasks that are in front of us in the Christian life. Ephesians 2.10 tells us that we have been granted things to do, works to be done, and not just granted the works, but the power and strength to do those things. This is the strengthening grace spoken of. Psalm 119.88 says, give me life so that I can keep your testimonies. Give me this grace, give me this sustaining grace so that I can do your will, God. Verse 32, when you enlarge my heart, I will keep your commandments. This is the strengthening grace. <clears throat> Secondly, why is strengthening grace necessary? We not only need it to follow Christ's example, but we need it during times of affliction. Um, we need it to make it through. If you've ever been in dark times, you know what I'm talking about. You need this strengthening grace to comfort your soul, to give you hope for tomorrow. Psalm 19, 119.50, this is my comfort in my affliction that your promise gives me life. third reason that we need strengthening grace is because strengthening grace comes in the form of faith, hope, and love. 
that's how you experience faith. That's how I experience strength and grace is faith, hope, and love. Um, these are the gifts from God. These work together. These three Christian graces, faith, hope, and love, work together to affirm the presence of God in your life and to bless those around you. This is, this is what grace does for us. Paul said this to the Galatians, for in Christ Jesus neither circumcision nor uncircumcision counts as anything but only faith working through love. This is the activity of grace in the life of a Christian. And then we see in, in 2 Corinthians 5.14, for the love of Christ controls us or compels us or motivates us. And this is ongoing grace, strengthening grace. You, you want to know why you have very little motivation to serve others in the church or very little motivation to open the word of God is because you may have little or no grace that strengthens you for that task, which is why the author's praying for it in Psalm 119. Do you want a vibrant Christian life? Do you want a genuine, authentic relationship with God? This is the path we must follow. I, I, I'm like the psalmist who knew the deadness and lethargy of his spirit without this increasing life-giving grace. He knew that without more grace, his obedience would be burdensome. Is your obedience to God burdensome? He knew that it would be joyless and unpleasing to God. Is your, is your obedience just a, a burden and joyless duty? Then, then plead with God this prayer. Verse 37. Turn my eyes from looking at worthless things and give me life in your ways. Give me stifling grace to turn away from sin and strengthening grace to turn towards you. Do you want to glorify God in your life? Then, then pray this prayer. So what should we do to experience a more vigorous and vibrant and real walk with Christ? First is follow this prayer Follow this author's example. Pray this prayer. Ask God to eliminate worthless things in your life. You know, spend a little bit of time thinking about those things that aren't spiritually productive and not that they're bad, but that you would spend less time pursuing them. Ask God to give you a clear vision in that department. Secondly, let's... let's if we, we, I want to be a, a, a pastor of a church, I want to be a Christian in a church where the majority of people actually are excited about their relationship with God. And I thank God regularly that generally this is the case at Sun Valley Church. That we have a group of Christian people that by God's grace actually love God and enjoy his people. And I'm so thankful for that but we could use one more, one more person to join us in this passionate, affectionate pursuit of God. So we need to stir each other up as Hebrews 10, 24 commands us to do. You need me and I need you. Right now, I'm stirring you up. 
hopefully in a good way. Hopefully that my stirring here is going to produce righteousness uh, and joy. And, you know, this responsibility is, is something that we each have. We are each responsible as Christians to stir the Christians around us up towards godliness. Stir one another up to love and good deeds. Stir the grace of God, the strengthening grace of God up in one another. Remind each other of God's goodness and grace in Christ towards you. And in order to do that, you actually have to be in each other's lives. If this right now is the extent of your fellowship, then you're not stirring one another up. Stir one another up to love and good deeds. Stir one another up to the pursuit of grace in Christ, to the exercise of grace in Christ. Be involved in my life. Be involved in each other's lives. Thirdly, stir yourself up. Like Paul told Timothy, fan into flame that gift that was given to you. Stir yourself up. Turn off the TV or computer. Pick up a good book. Call a friend. Take someone out and, and, and encourage the, great, the growth of grace in their life over some coffee. Finally, we began the service with this verse, Hebrews 12, 1 and 2. This is what we can do to experience more life in God. Pray, stir one another up, stir yourself up, and finally, fix your eyes on the beauty of Christ. The only way to get you to do any of this, if, it's, if it's, it seems attractive, the only way to draw you into this is if this sounds good to you. And so, see the beauty of Christ. He is beautiful. He is the lily of the valley. Um, he is the bright and morning star. He is everything the book of Hebrews that we spent a couple years studying describes him as. He is everything we need for life and godliness. He is the lover of your soul, the creator of the universe, the God of love. He is beautiful. And if you will see him as beautiful, the world will begin to dim. It says this, let us also lay aside every weight and sin, weight are those worthless things, which cling so closely and let us run with endurance the race that's set before us how, how do we do this the author here says looking to Jesus I think the King James says fixing your eyes on Jesus zeroing in on Christ who is the founder and perfecter of your faith who for the joy set before him endured the cross friends if you will just see Jesus this will happen this this turning away from worthless things will become easier and easier and easier the clearer Christ becomes to you. And so this prayer, if you will pray this prayer in, in verse 37, is simply a prayer that you'll see Jesus.
This is my prayer for my own soul and for yours. Let's do that right now. Let's pray that God would do this for us. <clears throat> Lord, we would ask that you would reveal yourself to us in your glory and your beauty so that the things of this earth would grow strangely dim in the light of your glory and grace. God, we, <clears throat> we want this. We want an affectionate, passionate, joyful, genuine walk with you. And we, we don't quite understand the mystery of our participation in the process, but we know because of your commands, the clear commands of scripture that we must participate, but that you must work. And so we're pleading that you will work in us um, the, the grace that will cause us to pursue you. Whatever it takes, Holy Spirit, to, to do this work in us, we're asking you to do now for, for us, for me. In our heart of hearts, God, we want this. We want to be a church that's, that is full of affectionate people affectionate for Christ and affectionate for his word. God, do this miracle of grace in us and for us because this will bring you glory and bring us joy. We pray this in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Amen. <clears throat>